Am I on? I'm on. You might want to turn it down. I can get loud. Um, good morning, Redemption City. Uh, it's a joy to be with you guys this morning. Um, like Susie said, my name's Jackson. I actually uh, had the privilege of preaching here at Redemption City um, a couple years ago, and I had a conversation with Mike, Pastor Mike, last this last Thursday. And um, he mentioned that since this past spring, you guys have been kind of bursting at the seams, that new people are flowing in. So I would imagine that half of you guys have never seen me before, and the other half have probably blacked out your memory of the sermons two years ago. Um, but nonetheless, um, super stoked to be here, super stoked to uh, just be able to share uh, kind of what God uh, revealed to me as I was studying for this uh, sermon over the course of the last week or so. Um, and um, we're just going to put this there. Um, and uh, yeah, just stoked. Let's get into it. So we're actually going to start off with, with a question. I have a question for you guys. Have you ever witnessed something so beautiful that you have to pause, breathe, and gaze intently to take it in? Have you ever made it to the top of a mountain and looked down the summit? Have you ever sat on the beach with a half-folded-over towel, sand covering your legs and feet, right before dusk, and experienced time slowing down as the sun transitions from yellow to orange, from orange to pink, before disappearing behind dusk? Have you ever had this kind of time slowing down moment, gazing at Vincent Van Gogh's Starry Night, or uh, watching the movie Interstellar, or uh, maybe just looking back at an old photo of your spouse and children from decades ago? See, I'll never forget uh, this moment that as a third grader at uh, Wakazoo Elementary School, uh, during recess, I overheard Dylan and Luke talking passionately about this new movie that they had seen, The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Uh, during recess that day, I had, I had to hear stories about, uh, um, about Merry and Pippin being abducted by orcs, about Legolas and Gimli counting up their kills, Gandalf the White returning to Rohan to liberate, uh, to liberate them at the final hour and the fate of Middle-earth just resting on the path trotted out by Frodo and Sam. And then, um, after weeks of pleading, it happened. My mom showed up at 3.30 p.m. She picked me up and we went to the movie theater so I could see the movie. And I just remember, uh, uh, when I was watching the movie, I just became consumed by it. Because, like any good story, you don't just watch it. You get brought up into the story itself. And, um, you know, once I had finished the movie, I, I went back to, to school and, um, you know, I was sharing any and everything that I could about the different scenes from The Lord of the Rings with anyone and everyone who would listen. Because everything slows down when we experience something beautiful. 
And beauty, it's more than something that we just experience with our eyes. It's an experience. It's an experience that changes us. And it changes how we live. And in today's text, John shows us that the tapestry of God's transformational love is an experience and an expression. The tapestry of God's transformational love is an experience and an expression. And we need to take the time to behold God's love and then experience it and then express it. And it's important that um, we hear the heart of John's message today because we live in a culture overwhelmed with an inner ache for God. But it's failed to discern what love is and where to find it. I mean, our culture has largely defined love as one of two things. Love is either feelings of romance, feelings of affection, meaning like, I really, really like you, or love is tolerance for someone's desires and their behaviors, what they think. And... Um, when that type of love fails, the other answer that culture gives us is, well, just accept yourself. Just love yourself. In other words, it's up to you to love and accept yourself. And I, and I don't bring this up to rant against culture, but it needs to be brought to our awareness because uh, no longer do we live in the days where we can jump out of the river into our holy huddles. But we bring culture into our homes every day when we scroll through Instagram and when we flip on Netflix. And so we need to be aware that we can, and honestly, we probably have, slipped into believing that love is just romance, that love is just tolerance, and that when that love fails, we can find love by accepting ourselves, or by loving ourselves. However, this morning, John challenges us. He challenges those failed ideas about love with the only thing that can satisfy your inner ache and my inner ache. The very love of God. So, in the first paragraph of today's text, John stitches together four threads that together create the tapestry of God's love. Let's uncover the first thread. Look with me at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, there's a lot that could be said about this verse, but one thing that John makes clear is that the love we pour out it comes from somewhere. It's sourced from God. It's like God is a snow-capped mountain in spring. And we are the carved out terrain that the river of his pure, his life-giving, his loving water flows down. And it's actually his water flowing through us that proves that we're his children. And not only is God the source of love, but he reveals the second thread of his tapestry in verse 8. Anyone who does not love 
does not know God. Because God is love. And this, this, this makes sense. I mean, think again about the river flowing from snow-capped mountains. Not only is God the snow-capped mountain that produces the river, but he is the river itself, the substance of love. And in the same way that you can't watch the Lord of the Rings without being wrapped up in the story and living differently afterwards, so you can't drink from God's loving water, which is God himself, and not begin the journey of transformation into love. Now the third thread that John weaves surfaces in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is the point where John adds color fabric to the tapestry because he's effectively saying that God made his love visible to us by sending Jesus into the world. Why? Why does he send Jesus into the world? So that we might find life in him. In other words, God makes his love visible to us in placing Jesus in the world and so that we will find real, abundant, overflowing, meaningful life through him. And it's important to notice that this clause is conditional, meaning God sending his son to the world, it doesn't guarantee that you're going to find real abundant life, but it means that you can. You can find real, meaningful, abundant life if you go to him, if you drink from the river of his love, then he will give you life to the full. And finally, the fourth thread in verse 10, the very definition of love. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now this, this is the heart of the gospel. The word propitiation It's actually an old English word that's fallen out of common use. And and a better translation, I think, it comes from the NIV with the paraphrase or, or the alternative phrasing of the atoning sacrifice. So essentially what John is saying here is that God's love is God refusing to leave you and me left alone in sin and instead dealing with the problem himself. However, the problem, it runs so deep in the human heart that it requires a human solution. So God sent Jesus to pay the price for sin through his death and resurrection so that we can be cleansed, so that our sin can be washed away, so that we can have the love fractured by sin, reclaimed and renewed. Love is God paying for sin. Love is God making us pure. Love is creating the way for us to step back into his presence. See, and now John moves from from the heart of the gospel that he's made a way for us to step into his presence and to the experience of God's love. The way that we experience God's presence and and building off all that's just been said in verse, verse 11, John now says this, Beloved, 
If God so loved us, we... Hold on, my notes are totally out of order. There we go. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now here, John is saying that if God loved us enough to lay down his life, to pay for and purify us from sin so we can know him and live in his presence, then we too also ought to love one another. And then verse 12, it gets a little bit more interesting. He says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. It's like when John, what John's saying is that when we pour out the love that we've received from God, we make the invisible God visible. And his love is perfected. Now, the word translated perfected in the ESV, you know, it's a good translation. But if we import our idea of perfection, you know, the absence of flaw into the word, then we're going to miss the point that John is trying to make. I like the way that Andrew Kishner explained it this week at our preaching meeting. He said that that word teleo communicates something finding its ultimate end, its ultimate state of being. It's like John is saying that love can finally reach the end for which it was designed to become a river of life that flows from every one of you into other people's lives to nourish sustain and bring life or the niv it puts it like this but if we love one another god lives in us and his love is made complete in us so there's a sense in which god's love does not reach its intended end and it's left incomplete if the love we are filled with is not poured into someone else put another way god is offering all of us, a full, robust, life-injecting experience of his love all the time. But in order for us to get the full experience of it, we can't just sit in the river of his love. We have to bring the water to someone else. Then, and only then, can we have a complete experience of the love of God. Just recently, I was actually talking with a good buddy of mine who, he runs a business and uses his success and competence um, as a platform for evangelism and discipleship. He shared with me how on one rainy morning a few weeks ago, he had a meeting with a young, aspiring business professional. Um, The only thing is, it was one of those mornings where he woke up on the wrong side of the bed, Uh, he was exhausted from a long night of kids waking up in the middle of the night. And naturally, a 6 a.m. meeting was a mountain that he didn't want to climb. But nonetheless, he showed up and he had a rich, fruitful conversation with the young man. And afterwards, he said that even though he didn't want to go beforehand, he left connecting with his mentee filled up and rejuvenated. And, it was, and even though he was physically exhausted, he left full. So he poured himself out, even though he was physically exhausted and he left full. He went to bless and left being blessed. Or at the deepest level, he poured out the love of God 
that he's, he had received to this young man. And as a result, he had a complete experience of the love of God. And this is how it works. I mean, if we want to soak up God's love for all it's worth, if we want the most robust, the most complete experience of God's love, then it will never be enough just to be immersed in the river of God's love. We're always going, have to, br- going to have to bring that water to others. So when was the last time you had this kind of experience? What would it look like this week to bring some of the love that you receive in prayer from God to the people that you work with, to your family, to your kids, to your neighbor down the street? And I think, you know, you might feel pressure like, oh, I need to find a mentee. You don't. You could. You don't. What if, I mean, God, who is a creator, he designed us to be creative. And so we can love outside the box. We don't have to just fit into these these nice and neat categories of how we think it should manifest. And in the next paragraph, John shows us that the gift of God's love is God himself. In verse 13, John says that his spirit is the marker, the indicator that we abide in God. And in 16, he reiterates that God is love. And that if we abide in love, we abide in God. And this idea of abiding is a crucial way that we experience the love of God. Abide, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of an esoteric word. What does it really mean? Another way to translate the word abide is simply remain. It's, it's like a little boy grasping his mom's hand on a busy street. Or it's like making it to your honeymoon with your newfound spouse. Finally able to breathe and never wanting to leave. Abiding is remaining. It's staying in the love of God and presence in any and every moment of the day. And then in verse 14 and 15, John shows us a fundamental claim of those who abide in God's love. That those who abide in God see and testify that the Father sent His Son to be the Savior of the world, and that whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in God and God in him. And this flies in the face of the predominant cultural narrative that we all live with right now, that all religions lead to the same God. In fact, a coworker this past Friday was making this very argument at our company, at our company outing. But there's a problem with this perspective. None of the religions that they claim make that claim think that there's another way to God except for through their very religion. And in the Christian case, um, John here is clarifying that if someone has actually had an experience of God's real love, then they will confess that Jesus is the Son of God. So in some sense, this kind of answers the question if there's a real difference between Buddhist meditation, Muslim prayer, and the Christian experience of God. There is, if you've actually experienced God, then you will confess 
that Jesus is the Son of God. And now we get to the last facet of our experience of God's love. According to John, right after verse 17 about abiding in love and abiding in God, John writes this, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now, if you're in this room and you're a Christian, then at some point in your life, you've had someone quote verse 18 to you. That there is no fear in love, but that perfect love casts out fear. And while I would definitely agree that being situated in love would cast out fear, um, all kinds of fear. This text is actually talking about a specific type of fear. The verse before, it mentions confidence on the day of judgment. And the verse that follows um, is specific to fear about punishment. Now, so what John has in mind here is that the perfect Love of God, it actually, it casts out fear of the judgment of God, specifically tied to his punishment. So why does perfect love cast out this fear? Because the judgment has already happened. If we are in fact living in God's love, It's because the judgment of God was already poured out on Jesus. Our sin was atoned for. And we've been made righteous so that we can live in his love. And if like verse 18 says, we are living in fear of punishment, it's only because we're not abiding in God's perfect love, which confirms in our hearts that we're not on trial to be judged or punished, but that we're already made right with God. And now, I don't think John writes this to guilt people who are experiencing dissonance between what they know to be true of God and their their felt experience of God. I mean, I'll be the first person to raise my hand if we were to go around the room and ask uh, if anyone ever questions the way that God thinks and feels towards them. I don't think John is writing this to condemn those experiencing this sort of a struggle, but instead I think he wants to encourage his audience to return to the abiding presence of God. Because when they, or we, abide in God's loving presence, we receive a sense of security in his love that removes fear of punishment. It removes fear of judgment. Have you had this experience? The experience of sitting in the presence of God and having fear transformed to peace. Shame transformed to nearness of a real God that you can almost touch. If you haven't, try it. Take time this week to go to God in prayer. Just sit in his presence. Because even though fear of rejection and shame 
might be barriers that keep you from actually sitting in his presence. If you do, he will wash you with his love. He will comfort you with his presence. And he will cast out your fear. And see, tasting and seeing a love so real and transformative, it doesn't lie dormant in a person's life. No, it explodes out of a person's life. It has to be expressed. And John ends chapter 4 like this. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Here John weaves in the theme of obedience and calls anyone who claims to love God but hates their brother a liar. Why? John is arguing that if you can't love your brother, who, you've, who you can see with your own two eyes, who you can, you can touch with your own two hands, then it's not possible to love the invisible God. And this cuts against every type of Christian hypocrisy. John is saying it's not possible. It's not possible to love the invisible God if you don't love the very people made in his image. It would be like a boyfriend who keeps telling his girlfriend that he loves her while he doesn't spend any time with her and he's consistently cheating on her. That kind of love, it's just words. It never materializes into anything practical. And every practical indicator suggests the opposite, that he doesn't love her. See, real love is never just abstract, but real love is always made practical. And for John, it's expressed by loving your brother or sister in order to love God. And John reaffirms this in chapter 5, Verses 2 and 3. He says, By this, we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey His commands. For this is the love of God. That we keep His commands. And His commandments are not burdensome. John is saying that we know we love the children of God when we love God and follow his commands. I don't know about you, but it's not obvious to me why um, loving God and his commands would make it clear that we love God's children. Unless this has something to do with, with what God's commands are like. Unless it has something to do with the nature of God's commands. Now, John, who would have had a very Jewish perspective on the nature of God's commands, he would have believed that God's commands are good. He would have, he would have believed that God's commands were given to the people of Israel to bring order to chaos for the sake of human flourishing. Do they highlight sin and the need for a savior Yes, that's one facet, but the other facet is that God commands for the sake of blessing the obedient and blessing those that the, the obedient impact. I mean, let's try this on for size. Who benefits when you hold your tongue in an angry moment? 
You do. Because you don't wound the person across from you, and they benefit because they aren't wounded. Who benefits when you give to the one who asks of you, and do not refuse the one who wishes to borrow, like Jesus commands in the Sermon on the Mount? You do. Because you learn to trust God as your provider, and the person who receives is blessed by the money or food that they receive. Who benefits when you don't lust after a woman committing adultery in your heart? You do. Because the seed of unfaithfulness, because seeds of unfaithfulness aren't planted and watered. And your spouse does, because your contentment in the relationship God has given you grows. And the woman, the woman who could have been lusted after, she isn't reduced to an object. And so God's commands, they're always for your benefit. They're always for the benefit of the people in your life. And I think sometimes we relate to God on an emotional level as if he's a distant, arbitrary God who gives us commands for the simple reason that he wants us to obey him. However, while he does want us to obey him, it's not obedience for obedience's sake. But God, in his loving, benevolent nature, he gives us commands to bless those around us. What's more, the end of verse 3 states, and his commandments are not burdensome. He takes it a step further. They're actually God's gift to us. And when we abide in love, and let his love fill and transform our hearts, his, com- his commandments become a joy to fulfill. So, today, this week, remember this. The tapestry of God's transformational love is experienced and expressed. Slow down uh, when your own heart feels its inner ache for God. Behold the source of your love. Trust that God is love itself. Remember that God made love visible by sending Jesus into the world so that you could find real life in him. And keep your heart fixated on the only real definition of love that Jesus paid for and purified you from sin so you can be in relationship with him. And let that love wash over you and fill you as you experience his love by loving others and express his love through obedience. Now, it's a common practice here at Redemption City to do communion every week. And the go-to text is 1 Corinthians 23 through 26.